Whether you're traversing through Canada's beautiful Algonquin Provincial Park, adventuring in the thick Dantree rainforest of Australia, or navigating the ancient Waipu forests located in New Zealand, one can experience a sense of awe and wonder surrounded by grand trees and ancient rocks. If you allow yourself to quiet your mind and take in the reality of nature, you may begin to truly understand and connect with your natural senses, and start to unlock parts of your conscious and subconscious that grant you abilities some might consider magical. Abilities the human race has forgotten or squashed through years of development and subsequently evolved out of due to the convenience of everyday life in a society. With the integration of technology that has more or less taken over our conscious mind, we may have blinded ourselves from the amazing secrets hidden all around us. Through dreams, we have a chance to reconnect with some of these abilities, whether it's involuntary or intentional. Abilities like out-of-body experiences, astral exploration, or possibly even clairvoyance. When we lay our heads down, close our eyes and drift off into the unknown of the subconscious mind, with practice, one might be able to start to understand these hidden secrets and unlock the forgotten knowledge in the deep of sleep. To seek such hidden knowledge can be dangerous, however, and come at a price, so be careful what you wish for. I'm Charlie Conlon, and this is the nightmare I had last night. It was a long drive down a rough road through thick woods to reach the cabin. The enormous trees hung over the narrow trail blocking out most of the sun, giving a false illusion of twilight. The broad roots produced by the forest stretched across the road, making the ride very bumpy like the car was riding on train tracks. Luckily, after a long journey, we finally arrived at the cottage. Wow, this place looks pretty beat up, don't you think? No kidding. Oh well, it's more of an adventure this way. Think of it like camping. The cabin looked old and worn. Moss, growing in large patches on the wooden shingles of the roof, glowed bright green in the rays of the sun. Roots from the surrounding trees grew into the rock foundation of the cabin, like worms crawling into the soil. I stepped onto the porch. The stairs and floorboards were rotted and sagged a bit to one side under my weight. The cottage hadn't aged well in the unforgiving forest climate. Here, watch your step, I said to Liz, holding out my hand to help guide her up the soggy stairs. The sun was setting and the October temperature began to drop. We were eager to get inside and unpack. The cabin was lit only by the light of the setting sun melting in through the many windows surrounding the room. From the doorway, we could see an iron stove stood in the center of the living room, with a smokestack drawing up and through the roof. To the left of us was a small, dusty kitchen equipped with only a fridge, a sink, and some cupboards. Antlers and taxidermy game, like deer and moose, hung from all the walls throughout the cabin. How much did we pay for this place? Come on, it'll be fun. <laughs> I'll get a fire going. It was dark outside when we'd finally cleaned all the dust mites and cobwebs strewn around the cabin. Huh. 
What? This room, it's locked. The cabin only contained two bedrooms and a bathroom. However, one of the bedrooms was locked tight and strange markings were carved into the wood frames all around the door. Nick, the owner, said this used to be his grandfather's cabin before he died years ago. He mentioned that that door had never been opened. Well, that's super creepy. He didn't die in this cabin, did he? God, I hope not. Nick said he was going to swing by tomorrow and check on us, make sure everything's good. The two of us played cards and kept warm by the fire as the night grew late, and eventually we went to bed. In the middle of the night, I rose from my sleep in a quick panic. Thunder roared across the night sky. Rain slammed against the roof of the cabin. My face and chest were wet. Water was leaking in from the ceiling above my bed where I slept. Liz, Liz, get up. What, what? The roof is leaking. Liz jumped out of bed and we both hurried into the living room. Fierce wind blew through the open windows as rain dripped through more unseen holes in the ceiling all around the room. Liz rushed into the kitchen to grab as many pots and pans as she could so the leaking water could be contained. I quickened around the room, shutting each window blown open from the storm, and locked them tight. I pulled hard on the last window, but it was jammed. Rain splashed against my face as my wet hands struggled to grip the frame of the window. Finally, I managed to slam the window shut. I stood for a moment to catch my breath. It was then I could see through the dark storm the path leading into the woods. Well, that sucked. Yeah, and I'll definitely be telling this Nick guy I want my money back. A closet located in the bedroom had some extra towels and blankets. We sat by the stove, comforting each other against the warm flames of the fire. The storm outside was still raging on. Liz had an old quilt draped around her shoulders as she watched the fire. Sitting by a fire on a stormy night normally would have been romantic. I wasn't so distracted by the pictures sewn across the blanket she was using. Strange symbols and drawings displayed all across the fabric, almost like ancient carvings with words underneath, each within a square telling a story. The fire's light danced around the animal heads hanging on the walls. I could feel their eyes watching me as I stared at the disturbing designs on the tapestry. I was beginning to feel nauseous. What's wrong? Huh? Oh, look at this blanket. I slid the quilt off her shoulders and held it out with my arms, revealing all the designs for us to see. The pictures on the quilt showed people all around a circular design with splashes of deep crimson and vibrant purple colors. Some of the human figures were dancing, while others were burning and suffering. At the bottom were five squares, each a corner of a larger square, with a diamond shape in the middle. All of them had a word stitched underneath. At the top of the tapestry loomed a dark figure with glowing eyes and a lantern, his arms outstretched embracing all the stitched patterns. It looks like some sort of tapestry. It's really disturbing. What do you think it means? I'm not sure. Look at these words. Gasha, Movita, Thrush, Pomitia, Haveya. I don't like this. Put it back. Agreeing with Liz, I folded up the strange tapestry and placed it back in the closet from where we found it. The storm was beginning to subside, and eventually we fell asleep by the fire. The images from the tapestry remained in my head as I stared at the trees outside the cabin's windows the next morning. 
The storm had made the surrounding forest lush with a deep green glow. I stared out the window that gave me such grief the night before, remembering the path I saw through the rough storm leading into the woods. I could see the dirt trail more clearly now, choked by the thick of the surrounding bushes and trees. We should take this path today, see where it leads. I said to Liz while she sat on an old sofa against the cottage wall reading, Murder on the Orient Express. Sure, that could be fun. The path was narrow, leading deep into the dense forest. Leaves and branches stretched out from either side of the trail, forcing us to maneuver under and around them. Each brush against the greenery caused specks of cold water to drip onto our heads and backs. We hiked up a large hill and the trail winded around. Our damp clothes made the brisk October air feel colder. We hiked all afternoon and into the early evening. I could tell the sun was starting to set because the orange sunlight stretched our shadows far across the trail. We should turn back soon or risk being stuck on this trail in the dark of night. Unexpectedly, we stopped short in front of a gate of an old graveyard. The iron gate was housed by a wooden roof, with two wooden benches underneath. The wood was weathered and the iron bars were rusted. I stepped up to the gate, which wasn't locked, and opened ajar. A dense fog drifted through the graveyard, making the headstones difficult to see. Liz stepped up, fearlessly pulled the gate open, and walked in. For a moment, I watched her as she slowly disappeared into the fog. Then I, too, entered the graveyard. An eerie quietness hung inside the cemetery, making each movement we generated sound louder than it actually was. Hundreds of gravestones were spread throughout the graveyard in a semi-organized manner. Many of the headstones were thin and weathered so badly the words carved into the stone were nothing more than illegible divots. Many of the ancient tombstones were tilted or leaning, making the cemetery look like a set from an old horror classic. Look at this! Liz called just ahead in the fog. She was squatted next to a headstone that was clearer to read. Francis Wright, 1802-1804. She stood up and began to walk along the aisle of headstones, reading them out. Jonathan Dowry, 1823-1826. Robert Trifle, 1818-1822. Howard Ground, 1807-1808. Most of these graves are children. She was right. As we walked along the hallway of gravestones, it was clear that many of the bodies that lay decomposing under our feet were in fact children. All around the same time period during the 19th century, which leads me to believe there was some sort of plague, or maybe the child mortality rate was just higher during that time. We continued exploring the graveyard, reading the historic messages and dates written on the ancient tombstones. Both Liz and I were quiet, respecting the eternal rest of the bodies which occupied the graves. At the back of the cemetery, we came upon an elaborate mausoleum. Steps led up to a marble base where four pillars held up a stone roof. The mausoleum was coated in a layer of vines so thick you could barely see the stone underneath. The front had been badly vandalized, with spray-painted graffiti and curse words. The words Ezerus Auric were carved above the doors, which had been forced open by the looks of it. Look, there's a stone coffin inside, 
I dare you to go in. Sure, you think I'm afraid? (laughs) I think you are. Liz walked defiantly up the stairs and slowly inched her way closer to the open doors, leaning her head forwards just a little to get a better look inside. Who's there? Liz, halfway through the open mausoleum doors, stopped in her tracks and turned around to see a man walking through the cemetery toward us. Excuse me, can I help you? Liz stepped down from the steps and stood next to me. An old man, about 65 or 70 years old, approached us. He had white hair that was slightly stained yellow at the roots. He was wearing a plaid shirt with a red vest over top and a flat cap on his head. He looked like a man who spends a lot of his time in an English pub, like one of the regular patrons. I'm sorry, we were just looking around. Mm Mm-hmm. You're trespassing on this mausoleum. No, we saw it was open and we were just curious. We were just interested in the history of this cemetery. Hmm. The old man reached into the pocket of his baggy worn brown pants and pulled out an old pipe. He then reached two fingers into the front pocket of his vest and removed a small animal skin sack which contained raw tobacco. He stuffed his pipe, then struck a match along his black boots and lit the pipe with three puffs. Name's Bertram. I'm the groundskeeper of this cemetery. If I see you vandalize any of these gravestones, I won't hesitate to call the local police. We'd never do that. We were just admiring the graveyard. Can I ask, who is Ezra's Oric? In a cloud of dank tobacco smoke, Bertram walked between Liz and I and up the steps onto the mausoleum. Looking at the engraved name above the doors, then inspecting the colorful graffiti painted on the stone while puffing his pipe. Ezra Sorek. He was an old man who lived in a cabin near here. He said he was into devil worship and dark magic. Bertram pushed one of the doors to the mausoleum open a little more and stepped inside. Liz and I casually walked up the steps and stood in the doorway, watching Bertram walk around the stone coffin inside the mausoleum. A devil worshipper? Mm-hmm. Which is why the teenagers always come here and drink. Bertram said while picking up empty beer bottles and garbage scattered around the inside of the mausoleum. There was more graffiti on the walls inside. Different occult symbols and pentagrams, as well as used candles all around the stone coffin and floors. They think they can summon Ezra's. He'll grant them wishes or some shit. Look at these markings on top of the coffin. Liz brushed off dried leaves and dirt from the stone slab. In each corner were the same symbols we saw in the tapestry, including the diamond shape in the center. Hey, yeah, what were the words that went with those? I thought for a moment. Bertram stood in the corner at the back. The inside of the mausoleum was filling up with the yellow smoke from his pipe, making it hard to breathe. I think it was... Gasha. Movita, Thrush. Wind blew up the steps, pushing dried leaves into the tomb, whirling Bertram's pipe smoke around like a thin tornado. Pomitia. Havaya. The sun was under the trees now. The sky was a deep blue, and the shadows inside the mausoleum had darkened significantly. All three of us stood still, our ears ringing with the strange words I had just spoken. Then, it happened. 
the heavy slab which sealed the coffin began to slide off the sarcophagus, grinding stone against stone. What's happening? I don't know. Bertram, what is this? Bertram remained in the corner, his face white with horror as he stared dumbly at the cold slab, fall to the ground and crack in two, revealing the hollow innards of the coffin. A faint green glow began to emit from the casket. Bertram tiptoed one step closer, looking over his nose to peek inside. Without warning, a green putrid gas shot from inside the coffin, engulfing the mausoleum all at once. I stumbled back, my senses burning like I had just been hit with pepper spray. Gasping for air, I fell to my knees. Liz too staggered, rubbing her eyes and gasping for air. I shook away the disorienting haze, enough to see Bertram step forward and lean hard against the side of the stone coffin. Curiously, a lantern floated up from inside the sarcophagus. This lantern was the source of the green light radiating from inside the coffin. It floated hauntingly in midair. We looked upon the lantern, puzzled and scared. That's when we saw something else rise up from the coffin. Silently drifting up from the stone casket, awoken from his endless slumber, was the half-decomposed body of the resident corpse of the mausoleum, Azurus Auric, crowned with an obsidian diadem lined with gold, donned in a deep purple cloak with rotting holes exposing the thin gray stretched skin of the monster's arms and chest. His skin ripped apart in spots, showing the bones and dried bile that remained inside him. Now above the coffin, floating in the center of the mausoleum, the haunting corpse slowly reached up his hand and gripped his lantern, which caused an electric current of energy to flow through the beast's body, lighting up the two ocular cavities in his skull with a faint green flame. The thing turned his skeletal neck with a crack and looked at Bertram, scared in the corner. The floating monster reached out his other hand with an open palm, as if to greet Bertram. His hands had impressive gold and silver rings on each of his fingers. Then, with a quick snap, the beast clenched his hand into a fist and yanked his arm back. Bertram flopped to the floor, clenching his fingers in pain. I grabbed Liz's arm and pulled her towards me and towards the door. The cadaverous demon pulled his arm back further. Bertram's body lurched forwards and we witnessed something truly incredible. Like a mist drifting above a lake in the morning, a white vaporous spirit rose from Bertram's lifeless body. The disembodied ghost looked panicked and desperately tried to claw its way back into the gravekeeper's corpse. But the skeletal demon pulled out Bertram's spirit and absorbed it into the lantern which he held, causing it to glow even brighter. The floating gaunt creature of Ezerus Auric, donned in purple robes and covered in jewelry, turned to face us, and we ran. We ran swift through the dewy grass of the ancient graveyard. It was night, but the moon was full and reflected brightly against the tops of the gravestones. The skeletal monster exited the mausoleum behind us and let out deep vocal commands. And with these commands, the undead listened. All around us, the graves began to stir, and the dirt started to move. Hands and arms broke through the topsoil, and the rotting bodies of the deceased crawled out of the ground, awakened from their deathbeds, all commanded by Ezra's Auric. We ran fast along the dirt path of the forest, guided by the light of the moon. 
Thick roots from the trees made it difficult to run. We stumbled in and around the branches jetting out from the trees around us. I could hear the newly animated dead trailing behind us through the woods, like a search party looking for a missing person. We finally reached the cabin. I looked back to see a faint green glow in the distance, moving through the forest, drifting closer and closer. I'll get the keys to the car. Let's get the hell out of here. Right. I searched the cabin for the keys with no luck, feverishly trying to remember where I put them. Liz always tells me to put them in a safe place. God, I'm so stupid. What are you doing? I can't find the keys. What? Help me find them. But it was too late. From the window, I could see the green glow of Ezra's Oryx lantern, bright on the edge of the forest, drawing nearer and nearer, while his corpse minions surrounded the cabin. Realizing we were out of options, Liz opened the cellar hatch on the floor, signaling to hurry over and jump into the dark pit in a last-ditch effort to hide from the undead ghouls outside. Just as the cellar hatch closed shut, the front door to the cabin burst open, letting in frozen air and the cold, reanimated bodies of the dead. Their bone-exposed feet chipped on the hardwood like bad tap dancers. Hunched over in the dirt basement, we watched fragments of activity through the cracks of the old floorboards. Then they all stopped, and everything went eerily quiet. Green light shined through the cracks and holes of the floorboards as Ezerus entered the cabin, not walking, but floating above the ground. His emaciated body glided over to the mysterious locked door, and without effort, it opened and he entered. The corpse minions stood still, some wheezing as rotting flesh dripped to the ground. We hid in the cellar until morning. In the morning, we heard the sounds of a car approaching outside the cabin. It was Nick, the cabin's owner. The zombies inside the cabin remained still as the now familiar green light again drifted through the cabin and towards the front door. Hello, uh, it's me, Nick. The front door was a... No. No, it can't be... Just like Bert Ram in the mausoleum, the dark power of Ezra's gripped the life and soul from Nick and quietly exited the cabin back to the forest, back to the graveyard along with his undead army. After waiting in the dark cellar for some time, we were sure that it was safe to resurface and make our escape. We crawled out of the cabin's pit. Nick's cold, lifeless body was crumpled in a pile by the front door, his mouth agape and his eyes wide. Find your keys. Let's get the hell out of here. I'll look in the bedroom. You search the kitchen. Hey, what are you doing? Look at all of this. I stood in the doorway of the once mysteriously locked room, looking into an impressive study to which I have never seen before. The room held thousands of books, towering along the walls, and stacked on top of a rich mahogany desk with ethereal symbols engraved into the wood. Maps, diagrams, and charts hung all around the room displaying glyphs I have never been exposed to. Glass jars containing different liquids and bials sat on a shelf next to what looked like an alchemy lab, complete with glass tubes and metal burners containing piles of coal on one side and what looked like gold nuggets on the other. The room was certainly impressive. I stepped into the study and was hit with a musty smell of stale incense. 
I thumbed through books and scrolls piled on the desk, most of them revealing strange texts and illustrations in languages I didn't recognize. I found the keys, let's go! Yeah, one second. On the table, under some silk cloth, I found an old tome titled Necromancy and the Eternal Knowledge. The date at the bottom read 1646. I opened it, revealing pages that were written in Old English using thick ink. There were summoning rituals, potions to empower friends or bewitch foes, spells to manipulate your reality. It was incredible. So much knowledge I was unaware of. I could feel myself becoming entranced by the texts I held. I read quickly, soaking up each word. I wanted more. I stopped on a chapter on the second half of the book titled Lichen, The Path to Immortality. In this chapter, there were horrible rituals dealing with dark spirits with the permanent outcome of immortality. This tome was truly amazing, but at the same time, terrifying. I continued reading forwards, enchanted by this mysterious tome, and in this deep hypnosis for knowledge, I was unable to hear Liz's cries. <coughs> wasn't until three of Ezra's horrid ghouls pulled Liz through the door of the cabin with their cold, dead hands that I looked up in a somewhat drunken state, but it was too late. They had dragged her off into the woods. It felt like a lifetime before I could move from my paralyzed state. There was nothing I could do. How could I have been so oblivious to her cries for help? What happened to me? What was that book? I asked myself these questions, pacing around the cabin, panicked and trying to devise a rescue plan to get Liz. I can't just run in there and get her, or I may be caught and suffer the same fate. I tried desperately to formulate a plan, but couldn't organize my thoughts through the fear weighing on my mind. And that's when I saw them. The car keys laying on the cabin floor in the kitchen. Liz must have found them before getting snatched up by the decomposing reanimated corpses of the graveyard. I could leave. I hated myself for thinking it, but I could get help. What could I do against such a supernatural force? I ran out the door, hopped in the car, and started it. I'm a coward. What horrors could Liz be enduring as I sit here in the car on the cusp of leaving? What would she have done in my situation? She would be fearless. As fearless as she was running into that haunted graveyard. I can't leave her. If there is knowledge hidden in those books on how to become an undead wizard king, then there must be information on how to stop one. I picked the necromancy tome off the floor of the study inside the cabin. I searched through the ancient text looking for information about this demon that commands the dead, and I found exactly what I was looking for. Through a series of rituals, a wizard must trap their soul to a relic or a physical item. Doing this binds their soul to the physical world, so destroying the relic will destroy the lich. The lantern. It must be the lantern that Ezra carries with him, the one he uses to suck the souls from his victims, gaining energy so that he can continue living after death. I looked through the study for anything that could help me. In the corner, I found another book titled Power and Protection, Spells for Attack. In this book, there were spells to conjure lightning, 
spells to stun, and spells to ignite flames. At first, it all seemed silly until I lit a candle merely by uttering one word. The book explains that for these spells to properly work, one must don themselves in ancient garbs or hold physical amulets. So I draped myself in an archaic green robe, grabbed the book, and headed toward the cemetery. Night had fallen. It was cold, with winds howling. Zombie corpses lay hidden and wandering in the woods, but I was now armed with ancient sorcery and determination. With each undead encounter, I struck them down with flame, lightning, and wind, exploding their bodies into puddles of putrid flesh. At last, I reached the mausoleum. Cautiously, I stepped inside, but it was empty. There were echoed sounds coming from the stone casket, which led me to discover a set of stairs leading down underground. Cold air wafted through the underground passageway, and the narrow cave walls were wet with earth's perspiration. The same dank incense smell from the cabin's study hung heavy in the air, getting heavier as I entered into a large room. The room looked like an old library, lit only by green flames from torches hanging all around. The walls were covered in bookshelves leading up to the shallow ceiling. More mysterious lab instruments and magical tools sat in the corners, while a large throne was placed at the far end of the lich's lair. I stood at the ready to face whatever evils lay down in this cave, but it was empty. No Liz and no Azurus. I approached the throne and touched its gold molding. Where could she be? Where have they taken her? I searched for clues or other passageways that led deeper underground, but there was nothing. By the time I heard something enter the cave and swung around with my spell book at the ready, it was too late. Ezerus had quietly floated through the cave and crept up behind me, freezing me in place with a whisper. His mummified gray skin stretched tight across his face. I stared into the deep black cavities of his eyes where faint green flames could be seen in the depths of his skull. I tried to voice a spell, but I was unable to talk, let alone breathe. Ezerus raised me up in mid-air with his skeletal arm decorated in gold and silver jewelry glittering from the surrounding flames. His lipless mouth uttered another whisper, and with it, I was transported from this reality into the next. However, this new reality was more horrifying than anything I could have imagined. I sat pressed against green glass, sitting atop hundreds of other bodies, all screaming, naked and clawing. I could see the lich's lair through the glass. It didn't take me long to discover that this hell was inside the lich's lantern. My soul is trapped here with all the other souls Azuris Auric has claimed. And through the glass of the lich's lantern, I could see Liz enter his lair, calling out my name. Charlie! Looking for me. Charlie? And then I woke up. Many of us grow up pretending to have magical powers, 
pretending to be invisible to steal a cookie from the cookie jar, practicing to fly by jumping off a swing when it's at its highest point, even staring intensely at a pencil on a desk in an attempt to make it move with our minds. It's everyone's dream to have supernatural powers. We all wish to be Harry Potter, Merlin, Gandalf, and even Luke Skywalker with a range of magical abilities. Well, what if some of these abilities were closer to reality than they are to fiction? Magical dreams can certainly be a message from your subconscious about hidden talents. But it's how you receive these messages and what they mean to you that is important. To break down my nightmare, I'll start from the beginning. In the nightmare, we travel to an old cabin deep within the ancient woods. Like I've stated in the past, when you see a house, a building, or in this case, a cottage, it is a projection of yourself. Whatever the state of that structure is in, inside and out, is the state of your mental well-being. The cottage in the nightmare was leaky, old, and run down. This could indicate that I am feeling run down in my waking life, and I may need to do some home repairs on myself. That being said, the cabin closely resembled the cabin in the movie Evil Dead, and in that case, I would be excited to stay a night or two inside it. If a house is the representation of yourself, that means a second floor or attic is a projection of your higher self, or intuition. The cabin, however, didn't have a second floor, but in this case, it did have a basement. A basement in a dream is a representation of your subconscious mind, the basement in the dream was more or less a dark dirt pit that we used to hide in from monsters entering the house, which we could see through the cracks of the floorboards. If you were hiding in a dark pit, or your subconscious, with glimpses of the main floor, or conscious, through the cracks, it could mean that you were retreating inward and don't want to accept the reality of your current life. Inside the cabin was a locked room. A locked room in a dream could be a part of yourself you don't know yet. Once the room becomes unlocked, like discovering a new room in a house, this could mean that you are discovering new things in your waking life that you are ready to explore. In my case, it could be related to my recent studies in magic and the occult. The large quantity of books inside this mysterious room could be my search for knowledge, and reading these books could mean I am searching for personal development. In the nightmare, I discovered a forest trail and became intrigued to see where it leads. Discovering and following a forest trail could be an exploration of your own subconscious while sleeping, taking different paths and trails in the depths of your own mind to see where they lead. Journeying into a dark forest can symbolize your soul journeying through life. You're not quite sure where the trail is leading you. The forest was wet dense and dark, which could resemble fear of something in my waking life. In the end, you could come out of this metaphorical forest stronger, or you could end up in a darker place than you started. Upon exiting the forest trail, we came across an ancient graveyard with a lich gate erected at the front. A lich gate is a roofed, usually wooden, gateway, located at the entrance of old English graveyards. However, lich gates can be found throughout the world now. The word lich is an old English word which translates to corpse. A graveyard in a nightmare can signify that you are afraid of death, 
it can also be a sign of sadness in your waking life. The graveyard was filled with many tombstones, many of which were children. Graves or tombstones in a dream can symbolize parts of yourself that you have long buried and forgotten about. In this case, the child graves can be parts of my childhood I have abandoned or moved on from. Interestingly, some dream messages from your subconscious can be in the form of a pun. For example, a grave may indicate that you may be in a grave situation or grave danger. Deep within the graveyard was a mausoleum, overgrown and vandalized. Seeing a mausoleum in a dream can be a warning sign that you may have some anxiety in your waking life, or possibly some health issues. Within the mausoleum lay a stone casket, which contained the undead lich. Like I stated before, the word lich means corpse, but it wasn't until 1976 when the lich monster was created by Rob Kuntz and Gary Gygax in the famous Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. To quote from the D&D 5e Monster Manual, Liches are the remains of a great wizard who embraced death as a means of preserving themselves. The Monster Manual goes on to describe the Lich hungers for forgotten knowledge and the most terrible secrets. This Lich lay deep within the graveyard of my subconscious, resting inside a mausoleum, waiting for me to discover it. Though a Lich is a fictional monster from the D&D universe, there are some secret truths behind it. There are many mysteries in this world about the subconscious mind and mysteries about secret knowledge that teaches us how to unlock and harness dormant abilities hidden within ourselves. Some people spend their entire lives looking for these mysterious powers, while some of these abilities come naturally to others. Magic has been used by different cultures throughout history, and before science, people believed in magic. And before the development of large society, people were more in tune with natural abilities, such as intuition of danger, and a sixth sense to guide them to green pastures where the hunting was good. People would even use a technique called dowsing, where they would attach a rock to the end of a stick, hold the stick out in front of them, and attempt to find water or a standing stone. Throughout the years, science would eventually win over magic, and become the new pursuit for development. But magical groups would still go on to exist, learning, teaching, and practicing different magical styles. To oversimplify things, some of these magical styles include right-hand path magic, which is magic that deals with the study of karma, blessings through complex rituals that include all the senses, while including elaborate clothes and items to help the magician's soul and others reach to a higher form of knowledge. This is also known as white magic, or natural magic, and it has close ties to traditional paganism, focusing on the mind, body, and spirit. While another magical style is left-hand path magic, which isn't so much praying to a god, but more about becoming godlike through ceremonies. Left-hand path magic is about spiritual freedom and has been linked to satanic imagery and sex magic to ultimately receive godlike powers. It is also known as black magic and falsely accused of being satanic. A famous black magic magician was a man named Aleister Crowley, also known as the Great Beast or the wickedest man in the world. Crowley was the founder of the Order of Thelema, 
which is a cult that coined the famous saying, do what thou wilt. If anyone had the ability to come back from the dead as a lich, it would have been him. Some other styles of magic include necromancy, which is the study and practice of magic through communication with the dead and the summoning of spirits and demons to aid in the resurrection for someone who has died, and chaos magic, which is a collection of many different magics, beliefs, and rituals personal to the person who is practicing chaos magic. A person practicing chaos magic must have a true belief in what they are doing and have a firm goal in mind so they can will into existence positive results to help better their lives. But much like a cursed monkey paw, messing around with any of these magics can lead to devastating results, with the complete opposite outcome of what you intended. Other famous occultists and wizards throughout history include Helena Blavatsky, Roger Bolingbroke, who was a necromancer, Alessandro Cagliostro, and even David Bowie studied the occult and practiced rituals, which some say might have something to do with his great success. But what does it mean to dream of magic and sorcerers? Dreaming of magic, in a way, is much like practicing magic. It's different for everyone. First of all, it comes down to your view of magic itself. For example, if you love Harry Potter movies and books, and you want to be a wizard like him, dreaming of magic could simply be a wish fulfillment, allowing you to play as a wizard in your dreamscape. If you fear magic, it could be betraying in your dreams in a more sinister way, with witches practicing dark magic or evil sorcerers pursuing you like a lich. To dream of a lich or an evil wizard could mean that a part of yourself is power-hungry, and your subconscious is bringing to light a darkness that you are willing to use to get the power that you want. If this wizard appears to you in your dreams as someone you know in your waking life, then it could be that you feel that person is trying to gain power using misdeeds. Whatever it is you believe in, whether it's the practice of magic, or the study of spiritualism, or a specific religious belief, or even if you believe in nothing at all and take reality as it is, it's good to understand that everyone believes in something different. We should all accept and understand that. I believe that exploring and understanding our dreams and the unconscious mind is the key to something we yet do not understand. Possibly something magical. Or just maybe, something sinister. I wanted to thank you for tuning back in for season two of Knowing My Nightmares. I'm so happy to be back and working on this project. This episode was written by me, Charlie Conlon, with voice acting by Anthony Jaramonte, Liz Conlon, and Daniel Jaworski. Daniel Jaworski also did the voiceover editing for this episode. My sources for this episode are from the books The Occult by Colin Wilson, Poltergeist, also by Colin Wilson, as well as The Dream Dictionary from A to Z by Therese Shang. I hope you enjoyed this creepy story, because I had a lot of fun with it, and I want to hear your scary stories. Go to kmnpodcast.com and send me your horrifying nightmares. Rate and follow the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me at kmnpodcast on Twitter and Instagram for all things nightmarish. And remember, if things get too scary, you can always wake up.